A deep sea diving instructor from Australia wants to quell your fear of sharks. Coming up, he explains that most shark species don't really want to eat you. The amount of times people actually have a close encounter with a shark without even realizing they had a close encounter with a shark is a lot higher than we ever thought before. If you're reluctant to visit Cuba because of the tense history between their government and the U.S., Chris Baker suggests you're missing out on making new friends. There's few places in the world where you can walk down the street or meet somebody and you are invited into their house. Chris helps us explore beyond the urban core of Havana in just a bit. And to see what everyday Roman Empire life was like, plan to visit Pompeii in southern Italy. It's not just a pile of rubble, and you really get a chance to see how they constructed their buildings, how they laid out their street patterns, and how much of our civilization is based on Roman civilization. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Our favorite expert on travel to Cuba helps us explore the island beyond Havana in just a bit. And we'll get tips for time traveling to the first century A.D. to see how the once vibrant port city of Pompeii was frozen in time by Mount Vesuvius. But let's start today's travel with Rick Steves under the sea. For some reason, we've been wired to be terrified by sharks. But scuba divers actually seek out sharks to swim with. They find sharks are not dangerous at all. In fact, they find sharks have a kind of submarine charisma. Chris Taylor is an experienced diver with more than a thousand dives under his weight belt. He's worked in the dive industry throughout Australia and has a particular love for sharks. He's the co-author of the National Geographic book, A Diver's Guide to the World, Remarkable Dive Travel Destinations Above and Beneath the Surface. And he's on the line with us today to share his love of diving with sharks. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So I was really, um, it caught my attention when I read that, that you not only love diving with sharks, you claim they have charisma. What is the charisma? It's very similar to if you've got a pet dog, say you've got a black Labrador and it's out in a field with a lot of other black Labradors. You can tell your black Labrador from all the other ones just on the way that your dog behaves and the charisma that your dog has. And it's very much the same with sharks. So if you spend a lot of time with the same individual sharks, you will notice that they do have different personalities and slightly different behavioral traits. Well, that, so you actually, they live in a neighborhood and if you dive there repeatedly, you realize this is the same gang of sharks. Yeah, that can, that can certainly be the case. It depends on the species of shark. So there's well over 500 species of shark in the world. So there are certain sharks that are resident on particular reefs and that's their home. Other sharks are very migratory, like great white sharks. They're not always resident. Before we get any deeper, and there's all sorts of things yep. I want to ask you about sharks, but I know that some people are just going to tune out because they're, they're just thinking, no way, it's too dangerous. Why would I risk <laughs> my, my limbs being ripped off? I've seen those photographs. So let's just talk about the fear of sharks. Why are people so terrified of sharks if they're not dangerous? I wouldn't go as far as to say they're not dangerous, but they're also not this omnipresent monster that we need to be fearful of every time we enter the ocean. So if sharks were out there looking to hunt humans, and if they decided humans are their favorite food, then no human could go into the ocean ever again. That would be <laughs> over. Well, so we, we are exceptionally easy for them to catch if they so wished to do that. But time and time again, and especially now with drone footage that's everywhere nowadays, 
we can see lots and lots of footage now of sharks swimming around amongst swimmers and surfers absolutely not interested by those people in the water at all so i think the amount of times people actually have a close encounter with a shark without even realizing they had a close encounter with a shark is a lot higher than we ever thought before and you 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 wrote that you've had literally hundreds of meetings and never a negative experience with a shark exactly um all my experiences with sharks have been very relaxed and calm that being said um i have more experience with great white sharks than with any other shark and in order to spend time in the water safely with a great white shark you do need to be in a cage it it that's is possible because that's the dangerous one the great white shark is dangerous are more more dangerous than others yeah the great white shark is the one re- responsible for the most attacks and also the most deaths by sharks by far but just to put things into perspective i i read 10 people a year on average are killed by sharks on this whole planet that's and, that's right and yeah. one death in the united states every 2 years and when you put that up against anything else dogs uh bees falling off of ladders getting electrocuted by a toaster all those things are more dangerous than sharks exactly <laughs> i live in australia obviously and um we have the most deaths per year on average of any country in the world by sharks and that's at about 5 roughly every year yeah. and it is very unfortunate and is very sad but there's a lot of factors that seem to be common amongst most shark attacks things like people in the water in the early morning or the late afternoon when the light is very low so sharks do rely heavily on their eyesight so we're swimming along on the surface and they probably don't understand what we are i'm pretty sure they don't think we are a seal i think that's a bit of a myth but they don't necessarily know what we are and so what they'll do is they'll come up and have a look at what we are unfortunately for a shark not having hands that involves the shark taking a little bite to see just so to there, find out what it be, is so there must be There must be some particular joy to even take that small risk. Tell us the majesty of of being with a shark deep underwater. What are some of the the highlights, the 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 peacefulness, the inspiration mm. of it? When you're diving and when a shark comes in and starts to eyeball you, you can see this deep connection that you're having between one animal and another, us being animals. Um you can tell that the shark is having a good look at you and is just very very interested in what we are and what we're doing in the ocean and um they'll often come in very very slowly they'll come in have a little look then swim away and come back again and it's just it's such a graceful animal as it just glides through the water effortlessly and you can just swim through the water uh, with it and share the space it's brilliant this is travel with rick steves we're joined by chris taylor who's sharing his love not only of scuba diving but of doing it with sharks he's the co-author of the national geographic book A Diver's Guide to the World: Remarkable Dive Travel Destinations Above and Beneath the Surface. So Chris, a lot of times I can imagine you're enjoying uh like a almost a urban community, a a society of of fish and and uh, different sea life around a reef. And then a shark is part of that world also it comes gliding through. What's that like? So um you can see the whole reef react to it and there's been some incredible studies as well where they made a a fake shark and towed it across the top of a reef just to let the shadow of the shark follow the reef and all of the little fish obviously are afraid of the shark because the shark's the predator so the fish then go and hide 
and that actually increased the health of the reef by quite a lot because without the sharks there the other fish stay out and forage on the reef a lot more and so they end up degrading the reef because they eat too much of it and break yeah. too much of it if they're not away hiding away from the shark so all of these interactions are very very important and very interesting to see so if you go to a nice reef in the caribbean and it's a good healthy reef you're likely to see some species of shark just swimming along the reef naturally and that's the ideal way to see a shark but unfortunately shark populations have declined so much in the last few years in the last couple of decades that it's getting increasingly hard to just accidentally come across a shark when you go diving so a lot of the times, if you do want to see sharks, you do have to bait for them and put some sort of food incentive in that attracts the sharks in. And that's especially the case when you're dealing with great white sharks. It's not really possible to see great white sharks without doing that. You mentioned sharks are diminishing in population, and uh, you wrote that their population is 70% down. And we should see them not as dangerous, but endangered. And there's a case where they even found a Chinese boat that had 6,000 sharks on the boat taken because shark fin soup is so popular in Asia. What's the status now of uh, the well-being of the shark population in our world? Unfortunately, the status is not looking much better. Luckily, very recently, a few different shark species have been added to different international protection treaties which is a good thing that they've been added, but it's very sad that they needed to be added. So, yeah, lots of shark populations, especially the big migratory shark populations, are in massive decline um, because any regional protections that they might have don't exist everywhere. And so, yes, they will get fished up by big shark fishing fleets. Hmm. Now, as you pointed out, shark fin soup is a major driver of that, but it's not the only driver. A lot of countries still allow shark fishing, including Australia, where I live. And in any supermarket, you can buy shark meat. So it's not just all the Chinese for their soup, but obviously that does uh, create a massive demand for sharks. Chris Taylor's joining us from his home at Byron Bay, Australia, on Travel with Rick Steves. He works in the scuba diving industry throughout Australia and recommends his favorite diving locations in A Diver's Guide to the World. It's published by National Geographic. Chris, we just have a minute or so left, but I'd love to review. Uh, you wrote about the Bahamas as being mm -hmm. a great place for sharks. Let's just talk about enjoying a little shark tourism in the Bahamas, for example. What would there be in the Bahamas? Why? You mentioned it has a very healthy shark population uh, because of proactive uh, humans who care. So it's good for the local economy, generating lots of money for their tourism. Uh, what is there for shark tourism? Um, it's mainly driven by one major operator who's uh, on Nassau. It's a nice shallow dive, and they're feeding the Caribbean reef sharks that are there. So the tourists sit in a big circle on the on the bottom, um, and meanwhile they're they're feeding the sharks in the middle of that big circle. So you get up close and personal with it. There are a lot of people who learn to dive specifically to go and do this one specific dive in the Bahamas. And for me, it's a even though they are feeding the sharks and there is a bit of controversy on do we want to be changing their natural behavior on the flip side you've also got this education that they're doing because they are showing sharks to a lot more people and the more people that can see sharks and go into the ocean and see what's down there will have a, a very different appreciation for it and then do end up wanting to help protect it so it's a question of how do you balance the effect that we're having against 
the good publicity that it's creating. Mm. You have to also remember that in a place like in, in cities, like for instance, in California, in Laguna Beach, with all your normal city things going on, all you need to do is walk into the ocean with some scuba gear and uh, only 100 yards from shore, you've got little sharks swimming around and you've got this amazing marine life that you can go and visit. So if you live along the coastline anywhere, even in a big city, you're only 100 yards away from the wild natural world. Hmm. People don't recognize that, but in the most urban, congested environment, you put on some scuba gear and paddle out there for 100 yards and go a few yards underwater, and it's a whole, whole different world. Exactly. It's not a whole different world. It's the same world. It's, it's the same part world. of the world we don't see. Exactly, <laughs> and, that's, and that's exactly what we're trying to do is get more people in to see it. There you go. Well, Chris Taylor, thank you so much for joining us and best wishes with your work and your book. The book is A Diver's Guide to the World, Remarkable Dive Travel Destinations Above and Beneath the Surface. And Chris, thanks in particular for raising awareness that sharks are not dangerous, but they are endangered. And they're an important part of the environmental mix that makes our world such a beautiful yet fragile place. Thank you so much for having me. Chris Taylor and his wife, Carrie Miller, recommend prime deep-sea diving sites in 35 countries in their book, A Diver's Guide to the World. They also post photos from under the sea on their website, beneaththesurface.media, and on Instagram. We'll encounter first-century life at Pompeii in just a bit, but first, let's work our way across the island of Cuba on Travel with Rick Steves. Cuba has long been a fascination for its neighbors here in the United States. 90 miles across the Strait of Florida, we still tend to look at Cuba as a romanticized time warp thanks to the classic cars and its colonial architecture. As a leading authority on American travel to Cuba, Christopher P. Baker joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to encourage us to get a broader view of Cuba, to venture beyond the dominant city, the capital of Havana. Chris, thanks for joining us, and it's good to have you back. Rick, it's a pleasure to be with you again. So you're the man when it comes to Americans visiting Cuba. You're writing the National Geographic Guidebook to Cuba. You lead motorcycle tours around the island. And you've been tracking the delicate dance between the American and Cuban governments now for decades. It's been a few years since you last joined us. Can you just get us up to date on your recent travels in Cuba and what's new for travelers there? Sure. Well, Cuba is still um, the destination that I love more than anywhere else and where I go to more than anywhere else. So this last year, I was there January through almost all of April, leading mostly photo tours. So that's um, where I'm from right now. I'm kind of focused through the lens, as it were, as I take uh, people around Cuba. And what about the... um ongoing complexities of Americans actually getting in. Is it relatively open now and easy for Americans to travel in Cuba, whether they're joining a tour or going on their own? Well, restrictions are still in place, but most Americans don't realize that they can literally just make an airline reservation tomorrow and fly in tomorrow, pre-approved by the U.S. government under a license category for legal travel called Support for the Cuban People. Uh, the visa sounds like it's just a routine or just a, a simple hurdle you go through. You just sign, fill out a form, and they ask you why you're going there, and you say for the good of the Cuban people. Not even that difficult, Rick. Uh, there is no written form. It's uh, pre-approved, and it's on a, on a system that uh, if you believe you're going to be supporting the Cuban people, which means you know staying at B&Bs and eating at private restaurants, etc., which any wise person would do these days, then you're legal, and uh, off you go, and that's what you do. Who flies to Cuba from the United States, and what are the gateway cities? 
Well, most of the major airlines. So United, JetBlue, Southwest, but the big the big boy in town is American Airlines. They have six flights a day out of Miami. Hmm. And that's just to Havana, and uh, they fly to many other cities also. When I talk to people about their Cuban experiences, it's always about the people. And in your books, you seem to have an enduring respect and regard for the Cuban people. It's an admiration that a lot of people wouldn't understand if they just were basing their judgment on what they hear in the news here. What is it about the Cubans that you meet? Yeah, it's all about the Cuban people. I mean, there are so many qualities that I just love that some of them appear unique to them. Not least is their openness. My God, there's few places in the world where you can walk down the street or, or just meet somebody and you are invited into their house. And there's genuine love and affection. And there's no there's no animosity towards Americans yeah. based on U.S. policy going back seven decades of U.S. embargoes still in place. That really doesn't factor into how they judge you. If any society had grounds to have a have a chip on their shoulder about meeting an American, I think it would be somebody who's living with the consequences of our embargo. But as an yeah. individual American down there, I did not feel a bit of that edge. No, in fact, it's quite the opposite. They seem to love you because you're American, and there are yeah. all these affinities in common from baseball to old American cars that they, they can chat about. But um, they are amongst the most vivacious, yeah. culturally advanced people I've ever come across also. What I'd like to talk about, Chris, is, uh, of course, uh, Havana's great, but seeing Havana and then using it as a springboard to get out into the country. First of all, there's a lot of, uh, it just seems like all through Latin America, the colonial capital is a big deal. I mean, in Cuba, it's Trinidad, right? Well, Trinidad is um, the quintessential colonial city. It's one of um, seven UNESCO World Heritage cities in Cuba because of the way that it has managed to retain... um, more, more or less colonial integrity, if you will. It's a time warp city mm-hmm. on a hill. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful, dating back from, well, it was founded in the 16th century, but the housing that you will see in the center of uh, Trinidad is 18th, 18th century for the most part. Wow, that is gorgeous. I remember it's like a, it's like a two-story town, isn't it? It all goes back to a day long before elevators. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was once the wealthy based on sugarcane industry. And when yeah. it was uh, replaced, or rather the, the sugarcane industry bypassed it because there was no road connection to Trinidad and the rest of Cuba evolved as a sugarcane growing area. And Trinidad was uh, was left behind because it was antiquated and it was pickled in aspic in a sense. Hey, one thing is the opposite of Trinidad and the colonial charm is Veradero. Is that how you pronounce that? Veradero, yes. Um, It's not off-limits to Americans, um, but in one sense it is, because Veradero is a 12-kilometer-long white sand beach, and it's lined with hotels, most of them all-inclusive hotels. Uh, But under U.S. law, there is a restriction. You cannot, you may not legally spend time just lazing on a beach. And these days, nor may you stay in any hotel in Cuba because all the hotels, especially the all-inclusives, are actually owned by the Cuban government. Oh, that's Trump, that is banned. That is why it's a nice thing our government's letting us go there, but the string attached is we can't patronize businesses owned by the Cuban government. And I was going to think, you know, Veradero is sort of like the Cancun of uh, Cuba. It's an artificial Cuba. It's miles of resorts on the beach. It's probably filled with tour groups from Europe and Canada. 
and uh, all-inclusive kind of resorts. And you devoted 20 pages of it in your guidebook, and I thought, what a miserable <laughs> experience to have to research 20 pages of resort hotels. Oh, gosh, the research for the Moon Guidebook was something else. But you may be surprised, Rick. These days you go to the main resort areas, and what do you find there? They're mostly Cuban families staying there, Cubans. There are so many Cubans who have gained access to foreign currency, and, of course, they wow. get... Uh, they get special deals in Cuba these days yeah. uh, from the Cuban state. That, um, they're vacationing there. Well, I, I think, um, quote, communist governments all over the world are having to live with kind of a sham that, yes, they're communist in their ideals or whatever, but the reality is you, you got to have capitalism to play ball, and uh, it's working that way. In, in Cuba, there's there's actually two parallel currencies, right? There was. Two years ago, they did away with one of them, and... Hmm. So there's one currency now. Yeah. It's the Cuban peso, and that tourist money that you were familiar with when you went oh, yeah. uh, no longer exists. Ah. Uh, it's had profound economic consequences because the distinction in value between them was so great that um, there's been huge inflation as they've adopted the uh, lower-valued Cuban peso, and there's a great fluctuation of exchange rates on the determined by the black market, of yeah. course. yeah. I just was very frustrated by that because, in practice, the tourist would use the tourist currency, but I always felt that that was just giving up to the double sort of standard of there's the tourist's world and the real world. But now everybody's at least got the real world currency. Yeah, just one currency. Christopher P. Baker's our guide to Cuba beyond Havana right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Growing up in England, Chris got a master's in Latin American studies, and he's been exploring Cuba for the past 30 years. He writes the National Geographic Traveler's Guidebook to Cuba, as well as other titles on Costa Rica, Colombia, Panama, the Dominican Republic, Japan, and Scotland. Chris also recommends day trip destinations in his book, Perfect Day, California. Chris is joining us from his home in Southern California. What's an example of, I mean, you know, you can look at museums and you can look at fancy buildings that have some history. What's a short list of experiences that you would recommend for somebody that wants to have a more vivid time with the culture? I mean, for instance, you could go to a rodeo, you could go to a baseball game. Uh, what are some things? I think one of the things that stands out is you'd head to tobacco country. So you, you'd head west of Havana to uh, Pina del Rio, especially to Vinales Valley, and you'd head up into the um, individual farms and you'd learn Tobacco 101 from a farmer who'll roll a cigar from fresh freshly harvested leaves right in front of you and hand it over to you and you smoke together with a farmer. Oh. Um, I love that. I did that, I think, right in the valley you're talking about. And a lot of times when I'm traveling, I, I'm a TV producer, you know, and I'm always thinking, what could make good TV? And I looked at those weathered hands and the, and the weathered <laughs> tobacco leaves oh, together. in the sun, sure. And, and it was under that thatched canopy, and it was so... It was so organic, and it was so filled with heritage and love and passion. And to see that beautiful man rolling that beautiful cigar, knowing, I don't even know what cigar, what's a good cigar or a bad cigar, but knowing how many people would kill for that cigar, and then to see him <laughs> tie it together with, with 19 other cigars into a little bundle, I just thought, what a vivid, beautiful experience. Sure. And it was sort of just magical to be at that rustic table watching it happen. Yep, Absolutely. So that would be something to put on your list. Um, I think you can connect with a community by going to the the baseball diamond. Yeah, we were just talking about Vinales Valley. Um, 
just a small village, but like everywhere in Cuba, it's got a baseball field, and Cubans are passionate about baseball. And getting in there and even being invited out onto uh, to swing a, a bat at the ball is always a possibility. It's a lot of fun to watch them because they play with so much passion. That's one of the adjectives I'd use uh, about Cubans is they are full of passion, be it music, be it dance, uh, be it baseball. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're exploring Cuba with Christopher P. Baker. Chris writes the National Geographic Traveler Guidebook to Cuba. He leads photography and motorcycle tours around the island, and you'll find links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Christopher, I think a lot of Americans, they know Havana, and uh, they probably know Vinales, and they probably know Trinidad. But what else, especially on the east end of the island, would you recommend? What are some other places that we should be mindful of as we cobble together an itinerary? Cuba is as uh, far east to west as California is north to south. So there's tremendous diversity. In the east, you have um, Baracoa, the oldest city in Cuba, founded in the very start of the 16th century. And it is surrounded by rainforest. Cacao is grown there. It has its own um, indigenous cuisine based on the early pre-Columbian Taino culture. Uh, Santiago de Cuba nearby, uh, and Guantanamo. Santiago, by the way, is um, the hotbed of the revolution. It's where the revolution succeeded, and uh, very Afro-Cuban. The majority of the population is African, so very, very distinct from Havana in the West. Now, when you come into a town that is a rustic town, not a wealthy town, a town that has very little tourism, what does the American traveler do? I mean, is there one hotel that's used to Western travelers? Would that serve as sort of your tourist information office? Because they certainly wouldn't be one in the town. Uh, Where would you eat? What are the challenges you would have from a communicating point of view and and, uh, connecting with that town? Well, for sure, these places um, are less cosmopolitan by many degrees from Havana, of course. But um, you'd be surprised that everywhere you go in Cuba these days, there are private B&Bs, always very clean, Private restaurants, they may not be um, sushi, as you could get in Havana, but uh, you're certainly going to eat well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I lead a photo tour every year to eastern Cuba, um, the three places I mentioned, Baracoa, Santiago, and Guantanamo. In all of these places, we're staying at very nice B&Bs, mm-hmm. eating at the best paladars around. I'm taking you out to cultural sites such as uh, one um, near Baracoa, where the population is very clearly, facially, descendants from the Taino population. And you're going to have a classic Taino indigenous-style meal out in the outdoors. Tell me more about that. What are the indigenous people? The Taino, which um, that was the um, cultural group uh, throughout the Greater Antilles Mm. when Columbus arrived and uh, decimated by the Spanish conquistadors, Mm. no surprise, but um, But some of them in Cuba got up into the mountains and survived. And um, just one look at their faces, you you can tell their heritage. Wow. So there's many different dimensions on that island. And of course, people are going to go to the Caribbean um, dreaming about a lovely day on the beach. Uh, (laughs) When you're doing your tours... What's your favorite tip for enjoying that kind of a luxurious, hedonistic day? Well, I have to be very conscious that U.S. law does not permit it. Oh, that's right. Um, And so So U.S. law states literally that uh, kind of 9 to 5, you have to follow, and I quote, a full-time schedule of activities uh, that are um, in line with whatever license category that um, you're traveling under. And in most people's case, it will be what's called support for the Cuban people. 
I guess one way you could um, help out a local, the local people, and be in, in a good stead with your visa would be to hire a local guide. What would you say the average worker earns in Cuba, out in the fields, in a day? Yeah, well, this is a tough call because um, so many Cubans have access to either income that's coming from the tourist sector or from family remittances. But in terms of um, salaries these days, the Cuban state's salary probably averages now the equivalent around 45 to $50 a month. So let's just wait. Let's just think about that. Fifty bucks a month—that's two dollars and fifty cents a day if you work twenty it days. It needs in a qualifying. Month. Yeah. The big qualifier, Rick, is that we take for granted that we have mortgage, we have insurance, we have maybe an educational debt. Okay. None of these factor into the Cuban reality. Nobody pays a mortgage. Wow. Right. Nobody has a debt on a house. Nobody's paying insurance, etc. So the living costs are exponentially lower than they are for us. So $50... It's like pocket money to have three bucks a day because your food, your education, your medicine, your housing is covered. Right. So, But nonetheless, um, Cubans definitely need more than the state salary yeah. to um, get more than the basics right. um, to exist in a month. And so a lot of people have, uh, are making money from remittances or or from some aspect of the tourist trade, or from money that is passed down through the tourist trade as capitalistic tourist trade multiplies its effect by feeding the opening of new B&Bs, who hire locals, etc. Okay, my my big passion is hiring a local guide. They don't need to be a great guide. They just need to be friendly and honest and speak English Mm -hmm. and have that sidekick, that friend, that negotiator, that whatever, on my team. And it's always awkward when you think, okay, people make $50 a month. I'm going to be paying him a lot more than that in a day. But I don't want to be stingy. You're an insider. You know how the business works. You've got friends in Cuba. If you can find a local guide, what would be a very good daily payment for him okay, that would be I, I realistic for you? This is fairly easy because I have um, I hire Cuban guides in all my tours. So $100 a day would be mm-hmm. um, typical. Mm-hmm. You may be surprised at some of the money I throw out. You yeah. know, I have a photo tour called Sensual Havana. It's uh, glamour, essentially, fine art nude. But the models that we're using there will get up to $300 for a half day. Yeah, I have my Cuban photo assistant. Uh, she, I pay more than $100, $150, yeah. uh, So there's two tiers in the economy, but in, in, in a nutshell, if you're a traveler and if you can find a, a reputable uh, local guide for $100 a day, that's you're not getting ripped off. That's a fair, no, that's absolutely. A fair payment. That's for, yeah. and, that, and that's probably an industry standard right now in Cuba. And by the way, your photos are beautiful. I enjoyed looking at them at ChristopherPBaker.com. Let's just wrap up our, our conversation here by a, a tip from you. Is there a phrase or two that we should know as we travel around Cuba? that can um, endear us to the locals. One one tip that would uh, certainly raise eyebrows and go, wow, this guy knows Cuba. You, you meet some Cuban, you say, que bola, how's things going? Que bola, like that? Que bola, que no, bola. bola. Que bola, yeah. que bola. Yeah. Que bola. All right, well, thank you very much, and uh, how can I say happy travels? Feliz viaje. Feliz viaje. All right, Christopher, thanks and best wishes. Likewise. Chris Baker leads custom tours of Cuba each year, and among his photographic books is Mi Moto Fidel, 
motorcycling through Castro's Cuba. His website is ChristopherPBaker.com. An amazing level of detail has been unearthed in and around Pompeii at the base of Italy's notorious Mount Vesuvius. It's where you can compare Roman society from 2,000 years ago and how we live today. Up next, Nina Bernardo takes your calls with advice for seeing the Roman world in almost living color at Pompeii. We're at 877-333-7425. As you listen from week to week to Travel with Rick Steves, I hope we've stoked your appetite for encountering the past in some of the places we like to visit. Many of the best-preserved remains of the Roman Empire are found at Pompeii, on the flank of Mount Vesuvius near Naples. It's where American-born tour guide Nina Bernardo is taking us to better understand what disappeared under the eruption of Mount Vesuvius on August 24, A.D. 79. Nina, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So what is special about Pompeii? I mean, people travel three hours on the train south from Rome on a grueling day trip just to see Pompeii. But I think Pompeii is the only place where you can really understand the Romans, how systematic they were, what a pragmatic people they were, and what it was like for daily life for a Roman citizen. You really can resurrect that sort of... uh, intimate kind of here I am in the market. Or oh, absolutely. It's not just or... a pile of rubble. Absolutely. It's not just a pile of rubble. And you really get a chance to see how they constructed their buildings, how they laid out their street patterns, and how much of that is really very modern. You can make a lot of connections between the ancients and what we do today, and how much of our civilization is based on Roman civilization. You can even see towers that used to hold water tanks. Oh, yeah, be absolutely. fed by aqueducts and then be piped with the help of gravity throughout the whole town. Right. They had a very extensive, elaborate system for distribution of water to everyone. You really gain an appreciation for Roman engineering when you get to walk through Pompeii. Yeah, you really do. What happened exactly on August 24th, 79 A.D.? Well, the fact that it happened on August 24th, I always find ironic. It was the day after the annual festival dedicated to the god Vulcan, who is the god of the forge. There were certainly some signs ahead of time that warned that Vesuvius was going to erupt, but only very few people would have understood what those signs were. So basically, all of a sudden, a plume of smoke came up, and it eventually, over hours and hours, shot up something like 20 kilometers into the sky. And it took several hours for that to happen, and then all of a sudden, this huge ash cloud filled with pumice and stone came down and just... Just buried the city. Just buried the city. I mean, really buried the city. People were stopped literally in their tracks. Yeah, exactly. Today, we can even see these casts. You can see the plaster casts. The archaeologists are amazing. When they were digging down, excavating in there, what they found is that the bodies that were buried, the skeletons remained, but they had left an outline of where the body was. And so they injected liquid plaster into there. So you have the outline of the body, but the actual bones are still inside in the position they were when they died. So you can see some of the expressions on their faces. It's very dramatic. It is extremely dramatic. Nina, take me on just a walk down the street in Pompeii, and as a tour guide, tell me what I would see, and then how, by looking at that and knowing what it meant, I could sort of uh, get a sense of what life was like 2,000 years ago. The first big space that you're going to encounter is the Forum, and you'll notice that it says pedestrian only. Um, You'll notice that most of the important administrative public buildings and temples are around the Forum. So you'll see it really was the heart of the city, the gathering place, the social, the political, the economic center of the city. And when you understand that Pompeii was a commercial town, you'll know that travelers were coming in there from all corners of uh, the Roman Empire, and that's a place that they would meet to exchange news. So it really was the hub of the city. It was the heartbeat of the city. And it really is pedestrian only. I remember there's big, tall stones that mark the end of a traffic road right at the gateway to the Forum, to the main square. Now, when we look at the Forum, we would have great temples, we would have marketplaces, 
what else would we have? You would have administration buildings. You would have the Basilica, which is the most important building for administering justice, where a judge would sit. Uh, you would have something like a city hall. Mm-hmm. And you would have all kinds of shops. So think about what we would call a shopping mall. It's dramatic to me because you stand in the forum and you think of the grandeur of this when you when you can kind of put this rubble all back together. And then you look on the horizon and you see half a mountain. Exactly. And that's, and that's Vesuvius. And to think that it once was pyramid-shaped. Right. In fact, I believe that the Great Museum in Naples has most of the important art from Pompeii. Right. Everything that was not stolen during the unauthorized excavations was taken to the Naples Archaeological Museum, the most important in all of Italy. And I, I remember seeing a fresco that actually shows Pompeii before it blew. Right. In Covered in vegetation all the way to the top. A, it looked like a cornucopia of abundance and life, and life really was good before 79 AD. Absolutely. And because that's always been a heavily volcanic area, the soil extremely rich and fertile. So it was always a great place for growing vines and uh, olive trees. So they had a very important wine production that was one of the biggest industries outside of Pompeii. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Pompeii with uh, tour guide Nina Bernardo. And uh, when we walk down the streets of Pompeii, we're reminded what clever engineers the Romans were. Sidewalks are elevated to cover plumbing, also to keep uh, you from getting wet. If you think about water that would have been rushing through the streets at all times, animals that were pulling the carriages would have left their excrement in the streets, so you don't want to walk on that. In fact, there's even stepping stones, aren't there? Exactly. Crosswalks. So you can step over there to get to the other side. Stepping stones that let the chariot wheels go by and all the muck on the cobbles, but people with their nice sandals could stay above all the muck. Exactly. And you can also, underneath some of that, you can see where they laid their piping. So you can understand that they had a piping system that brought water to each and every individual home. So they would have had T-junctions that brought water from the water towers to the drinking fountains, but also to each of the individual homes. And the Very li- democratic in that way. How so? Well, just that everybody had access, for example, to running water. You didn't have to live in the poshest section of town. Okay. And you can even see the lead pipes remaining. You can, right. The ones that weren't stolen are still there. You can see grooves carved into the stone from the chariots. Right, and you can see where they were replacing some of those stones as they were continually doing maintenance on the city. And we have to remember as well that Pompeii existed well before. By 79 AD, Pompeii was already 600 years old. Really? Mm -hmm. So it was a a well-established town. Right. Take us into a private home in Pompeii. What would we see? How can we get an insight into, into the lifestyle of somebody who had a nice home in Pompeii? A middle-class home or an extremely wealthy home, basically the same layout, but you walk in and there's kind of a welcome area, an atrium area that would have been open to the sky, so rainwater would have come in and drained into a cistern. Um, There would have been a waiting area where you would have waited to see the man of the house if you had any business to attend to. And off to the sides would have been private bedrooms. Maybe in the back there would have been a beautiful garden where they would have had outdoor meals in the summertime. Um, If they would have had guests there, that's where they would have had their meals and they would have had slaves entertaining them with music and poetry. It's amazing. And beautiful frescoes remain on some of the walls. On some of the walls, yes. The Villa of the Mysteries especially, but almost everywhere you go, you can see the remnants of some painting. Now it's dark. We've just had a party. I want to go for a stroll in the streets. Uh, There's not a lot of light. But there's little, um, the sidewalks. The sidewalks all have um, marble chips in them. So they're almost like cat's eyes. So they reflect the moonlight so that you can get around without being in total darkness. I mean, it's really amazing the detail that they attended to. These are the little intimate insights you can gain by thoughtfully approaching a great site like Pompeii. But imagine walking just by, by moonlight and you have these reflective cat eyes in the sidewalk in a day before electricity, obviously, that helped you know where you're going. It's genius. What's another little intimate glimpse of life that you enjoy as a guide? In I Pompeii? love seeing the snack bars because it's the fast food of 
of ancient times. So you so, walk in and you see where the containers were held, where they would have kept food hot or cold. Usually the snack bars are outside of the theaters or the brothels or the spas, uh, the baths. And that's where people would have gone to get a meal or a drink. And I forget the number, maybe 40-odd, 50-odd snack bars in Pompeii. Snack bars all over town? All over town. I believe there were 30 brothels. Right. So Also an important industry. So, but if you think about Pompeii as a, a traveling town, a commercial town, all those travelers coming in there. Ah, it was a sailor's town. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, a lot of people forget that the sea silts up and recedes over 2,000 years. Right. So Pompeii was much closer to the sea. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nina Bernardo. We're talking about Pompeii. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Daphne's on the phone in Kensington, Maryland. Daphne, thanks for your call. Uh, you're welcome. My husband and I are going to Italy for the first time, and we'll be in Rome for a week. And I'm wondering, is it worth taking all day and going to Pompeii, or will we get a similar experience at, I think it's called Asta Antica in your Rome? Well, this is a very, very good point, Daphne, because as I mentioned, Pompeii is three and a half hours south of Rome, really, by train, and that's a grueling day, but it can be done. But Ostia Antica, the ancient seaport of Rome, which I think had 60,000 people in its heyday, is just a half an hour subway train ride to the south of Rome, and that could give you an adequate experience and save you six hours en route. Nina, how would you compare Ostia with Pompeii? I think they're both excellent experiences, but I think Pompeii is really worth the train back and forth because I think it gives you a much more complete picture. Um, Ostia is the most important port. It was a a trading, a commercial town, but Pompeii really gives you a look into daily life for the average Mm -hmm. Roman citizen. I would stress that the great art of Pompeii is now in the National Museum in Naples. So, you know, Daphne, what you might want to do is just uh, give yourself a couple of nights in uh, Sorrento, a beautiful town, just a half an hour away from Pompeii. That's the resort town. Naples is kind of like the urban jungle. So you could take the train down to Sorrento and spend the better part of the day in Naples visiting the National Museum and enjoying what I just think is one of the most exciting cities in all of Europe, Naples. Settle into the resort in Sorrento and then take most of the next day to see Pompeii, enjoy Sorrento that evening, and then take the train back to Rome. Nina, any I think that's that? a great use of time, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a nice break away from Rome as well, just to get onto the coast for a while. Okay. Any other thoughts, uh, Daphne? Another question, honestly, is when I looked online at some of the images of um, Pompeii, I saw, I think, it's still there, like the bodies of some of the people who died. And then I thought, oh, God, is this really, like, kind of going to be very depressing? Well, there are only a couple of places there where you can see the plaster casts. So one in one of the marketplaces, they have two in display cases. And then there's another area that you really have to seek out to see more of the plaster casts. But I think that's just a really interesting look. I think it actually brings the people of Pompeii closer, the Pompeians closer to us to see that. Okay, so it's only in two places, and, and it's not like all, you don't see them everywhere. It's not going to be a morbid experience. There's nothing, okay. there's nothing morbid about Pompeii, really, no. no. Okay. And, but remember, Daphne, the, the museum in Naples is so rich, and you've got so much incredible frescoes and pottery and uh-huh. insights into the intimate uh-huh. daily life of the people of Pompeii that it's just a shame to see Pompeii without going to the museum in Naples. I think you've only had half of experience if you've done only right. Pompeii. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. That's great. Thank you, Daphne, for the call, and and good luck on your trip. Thanks. Bye-bye. Another thing, Nina, is uh, Herculaneum is another town that was destroyed in the same eruption. It's a small version. uh, Well, it's a smaller town, but it's quite different. How would you compare Herculaneum and Pompeii? Than Pompeii. One, it was covered in 30 or 40 feet of lava and mud, so it's preserved much, and it's in a much better state than Pompeii is in. So you can see, for example, some of the wood in situ, which you can't see in Pompeii, some of the second stories you can see. Mm -hmm. It's a much smaller site because most of it is under the modern city. 
But we've said Pompeii was a commercial town. Herculaneum was really a much more upscale kind of place. So that whole coast south of Rome, around Napoli, was the playground of the rich and famous. All right. Tour guide Nina Bernardo specializes in showing visitors the attractions of southern Italy, where her own ancestors come from. She's helping us explore Pompeii right now on Travel with Rick Steves. It's where first-century life has been preserved after Mount Vesuvius buried the city in rocks, ash, and deadly volcanic gas. Natalie's on the line in Ashburn, Virginia. Natalie, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. Uh, I am taking a cruise, actually, and touring different places in Italy with a group of 10 people, and they range in age from 13 to 70. And so I'm looking for something that we can do in, you know, a nine-hour-ish time period that would be relevant for everyone included. You know, Natalie, I think I can actually answer this quite well because I was just in Naples on a cruise, And I was um, skeptical about how can uh, you enjoy an efficient nine hours on on shore from your boat in Naples. The boat docks literally right downtown in Naples. It's the handiest jumping-off point for any of the cruise ports that I experienced. And right there at the port, there's a good tourist information office, and there's a whole line of government-regulated taxis. And these guys have regulated fees. You don't pay until you're done. And there's minibus taxis where you could put a lot of people in. With a group of ten... You, you could actually book two taxis, and you'd find that they could do a very efficient day for you, giving you a drive down to Pompeii. You could actually go up to Vesuvius if you wanted to. They could take you through the site at Pompeii, and they would get you back to the ship before departure time. And they have an incentive in that because they don't get paid until they bring you back in time for you to catch your ship. And is it better then to negotiate a rate up front, or just is it a per-hour rate? How does that work? Uh, They would have the rates actually printed right there, and you would want to establish the rate and make it really clear this is the complete rate. The beautiful thing about renting a taxi from the port is, wherever you are in Europe, it's about the same for one person or for four people. And if you had a minibus, it would be marginally more expensive. But it really becomes quite efficient and quite economic when you have a group of people all doing something together. Your biggest frustration, Natalie, is going to be there's like three days' worth of things to see from that cruise port, and you've only got that one day. Exactly. That's why, you know, especially with the big difference in ages, I wanted to make sure I saw the things that were the most popular but that would still be appealing to all the ages. Well, if you've got the luxury of a, of a driver and a guide and a car, I think you just want to hit the ground running. As soon as that gangplank's down, be on it. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for your help. You bet. Good luck, Natalie, with your little tour of 10. Thank you so much. Allison's on the line in Spokane, Washington. Allison, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick and Nina. Thank you. Um, My family and I are flying into Rome. We arrive on a Wednesday morning in Rome uh, with our 14-year-old son. Then we have a full day Thursday in Rome before we leave in the morning on Friday to go to Venice to meet up with a tour. So we have this full day in Rome. We've always wanted to go see Pompeii, but I wonder, is it really a doable one-day trip with a bus tour? We can't afford the expensive private guide. I'm wondering, uh, for price and amount of hours, are we going to be completely exhausted and kind of spoil the rest of our big trip? We'd love to see Pompeii. We'd also just love to have a leisurely afternoon on the Amalfi Coast and then hop on a bus and get back in bed in time not to be exhausted the next day. What do you think? Your problem is you only have one day. (laughs) (laughs) You're just trying to do two days' worth of stuff in one day. Yeah, you really have to choose what it is you want. One of those options is possible, but you have to choose. You mean either Pompeii or the coast? Exactly. Yeah. 
it is Italy. Things don't work like clockwork. You're in Rome, and, and Pompeii is south of Naples. So there's an express train. What is it, two hours from Rome to Naples now? Yeah, the really fast one is an hour and five minutes. Okay, so if you can afford the fast train, that'll save you a couple hours of time en route over the course of the day. You might consider having a driver. Well, it's expensive to have a driver, you know, so you need to use public transit, I think. It was close to $1,000, I think, for the three of us to have a private driver for a full day to do Pompeii and Amalfi, I think. But that would be from From Rome. Rome. But you would go faster by train than by private driver. If you want to have the luxury of a private driver, but you don't want to spend $1,000, you've got to take the train from Rome to Naples, and then it's five bucks to take the Circumvesuviana right to the doorstep of Pompeii. Oh, okay. It's very easy so to Nina, do. So Nina could get from your hotel in Rome to Pompeii in two hours if she had to. Probably. But that's really knowing how to do it. Mm-hmm. This is the classic American problem. You're trying to do too much. You know, in half an hour, you could be at Ostia. Ostia okay. is really great. You've got a 14-year-old with you. Ostia is your neighborhood Pompeii that's just easy access from Rome. And every time I go to Ostia, I, I just feel like this is really... Um, a special discovery, and you, mm. you get the magic. It's not as good as Pompeii, but you're going to save six hours of travel time by mm-hmm. by going to Ostia instead of Pompeii. And I think to be practical, you sound like you don't want to exhaust yourself, and you're on vacation. You know, right? Take it easy. Make make Ostia your Pompeii, given the fact that you only have one day and you have a child with you from Rome. I think that's a great idea. And come back. Make it an excuse to come back and do the yeah. Sorrento, Pompeii, coastal. Exactly. Because, you know, for 25 years I was leading tours in this area. And the one place where we could spend more nights than any other, even Paris and Rome and so on, was Sorrento. There was so much to do from Sorrento. You've got the Amalfi Coast. You've got Capri. You've got Vesuvius. You've got Pompeii. You've got wonderful city of Naples. And you've got just the elegance of being on vacation in Sorrento. Fantastic. Thanks, Allison, Thank so and uh, good for you for taking your 14-year-old over there and having all of that inspiration. My first trip to Europe was when I was 14, and I ended up getting a history degree by accident and then ended up finding the career of my dreams, okay? Awesome, so, awesome. Same with me. I went at 14. I studied art history as a minor, and it opened the whole world for me. So isn't that great? I'm excited. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye now. Okay, bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been prowling the ruins of Pompeii and bringing them to life with the help of Nina Bernardo. You know, when you take a group through Pompeii, what is one spot where you really can kind of imagine you're actually there? I love going to the public baths. One, I love seeing the Roman engineerings, how they managed to make the hollow walls with the terracotta piping in there so that they could pipe in steam to make saunas. I love the beautiful decorations that they have in there, not only the mosaics, but the beautiful stucco decorations that are still left there. But most of all, I love realizing and understanding that those public baths were open to everybody. And now, today, we consider going to a spa kind of um, a luxury, whereas there they went all the time. And it was the full experience, the massaging, the oils, the warm room, the hot room, the cold plunge pool. The beautiful decor? The beautiful decor. My goodness. As a tour guide, somebody is lucky to have you to show them around, to bring that culture back to life. Nina Bernardo, thanks so much for sharing your expertise of Pompeii with us. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmora Hall, and Donna Bardsley. You can find links to our guests and listen to a podcast version of the show or search the archives. It's all at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Imagine a community of well-traveled friends who love sharing tips and comparing notes. That's our online community. It's called the Rick Steves Travel Forum. 
You can read trip reports, reviews, and share itinerary planning questions. Peruse the topics or post your own submissions. It's at ricksteves.com and you're invited.